as we uh, continue our uh, only series, the, the series on the solas of the Reformation, the, 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 the things that, that mark um, our return to the biblical faith. And that is, um, today we, we focus on, on what it means um, to love Christ alone, that, that, that mark of the Reformation. So we read um, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1 and going through verse 7. So um, as we read, uh, starting at verse 1, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Tony, if you'll come, and we'll pray together. Holy Father, Lord, we again thank you for bringing us together. I thank you for my brother Tony. Again, we ask you um, to bless him um, and to um, work through him this morning as he preaches your word. Um, Lord, let us hear, um, understand, um, and, and, and carry with us all that uh, comes from the devotion um, to you and your son, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Morning, guys. Um, so most of you who've known me for a while, hopefully you've picked up on the idea that, uh, that I, I love my kids a lot. If you've not picked up on that, uh, I'll work harder. Um, but hopefully you've picked up on the idea that I love my kids a lot. And I love spending time with my kids, but whenever it's just me with both of my kids, like out on the town, well, they can be really energetic, and I can be really tired, and it can be difficult. Um, and also, there's this sense of, like, whenever I'm trying to, to, to chase down one, the other's off doing something, and then I try to chase down that one, and it becomes complicated. And so, uh, my wife and I came up with this plan, basically, a few years ago, that we were going to try, as best we could, to as often as we could, um, try to do one-on-one -on -one time with our kids, right? We love our kids. It's admittedly difficult for the whole family to go do stuff. But since we only have two, and since there are two of us, occasionally we could take an evening where I take a child, and then Bree takes a child, and we go off and we do activities one-on-one. -on -one. And it's really, it's been really great. The one thing about it, though, that's really frustrating <laughs> is that almost without exception, whenever we get back together afterwards and the kids start talking about the stuff they went to do with mom or the stuff they went to do with dad, for some reason what was once a beautiful day turns to just complete argument, right? How come they got to have ice cream? I didn't get any ice cream, right? Because I take one out to like yo-yums or something like ignore the fact that the other one got to go to the candy store the candy store and get like a gummy shark the size of their arm right they have a really hard time seeing the blessings that they have 
And instead they look at the other person and they cry, not fair, not fair, not fair. Parents, siblings in the room, you ever hear that come out of a child's mouth? Not fair, not fair. It's incredibly common in children and incredibly common in all of us. Um, and honestly, it's hard to take seriously because I look at one of my, you know, I don't want to name names here, but I look at one of my children and I, I say, what do you mean it's not fair? Well, 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 they come back without much of a reply. Honestly, they don't really fully understand what's fair and what's not, right? The ideas they have in their mind of what fairness is are very much set by their worldview and what they can see and what they can know. Children don't have perfect knowledge, right? So one kid doesn't know everything that's gone on. So if one complains an activity's not fair, they might not know the pressure or the time or the effort that went into making that happen. They don't have perfect knowledge. And since they don't have perfect knowledge, that means they don't have perfect perspective, right? Children in their childhood can't look at the scope of what it means to be an adult, juggling the responsibilities that an adult has, and recognize that that thing that they think is unfair, that thing that they didn't get that they wanted, is, is really unimportant in the scope of things, or it's unreasonable in the scope of things, right? Little kid down the street has a brand new computer with a VR headset. I'm like, you're six years old. I'm not going to buy you a brand new computer with a VR headset, right? That's just unreasonable. They don't have perfect knowledge, and so they don't have perfect perspectives. And then on top of that, this is really evident in kids, if you've watched them for any amount of time, or you, you have them yourself, is that they don't have perfect motives either, right? Everything they want is tinged by selfishness, which is why it doesn't matter that I got a giant gummy shark. I want the ice cream too, right? That selfishness is there. It's not fair. It's not fair. The truth is, is my kids, as brilliant as they can be, are just not in a place where they can determine what's fair and what's not. They might have a little bit of a sense of what is fair, what fairness, what justice means, but they don't have perfect knowledge, they don't have the perspective that their parents have, and they don't realize that their motives are not as pure as they think they are. So you may be asking me at this moment, Tony, why open with this illustration? Why talk about fairness? I heard Rich read the scripture. I didn't see fairness mentioned in there anywhere. Why are we talking about this? Uh, the reason I open with this illustration is not because fairness is kind of dealt with directly in the passage, but because in our cultural moment, like where we live in America, the way that we think about the world, the way that we approach the truth, um, our, culture, our cultural moment has influenced us in such a way where I'm almost certain that as we go through the passages we're going to go through today, there's going to be something pop up inside you that thinks, is that really fair? Is that really fair? And so with that in mind, I just wanted to give this illustration to open with it 
to get us thinking about what is fairness. And as God's children, and not God himself, are we really in a position where we can make that type of claim? What's fair and what's not? Or are we maybe limited? Something to think about as we move forward. All right, so let's go ahead and leap into our text. Again, this is 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So those of you who have been here for a while, um, that have been listening to us preach through 1 Thessalonians and through other books, you know by this moment that the Apostle Paul, who is also the author of this text, really likes to urge people, right? He uses that terminology all the time. He'll say, I urge you to do this, or I urge you to do that. And whenever he uses that language, we know that he's, he, it's real important, right? It's not a suggestion, it's not a by the way. He says, I urge you to do these things. It's a call to action. And in this scripture, specifically the call to action that he's given is for prayer to be made for all people. Hear this again from verse 1. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. He gives us four words to kind of talk about almost the same thing. Um, because all of these words at times are translated prayer in the, in the scripture, you could almost read this, that I urge that prayer, 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 and prayer be made for all people everywhere. But each of the words is, is, has its own kind of nuanced meaning. So a supplication. Supplications, when directed at the Lord, are prayers, and they're specifically prayers for something that we need, Right? So if you're struggling with a sickness, or you know someone who's struggling with a sickness, and you go to the Lord and you make supplications, what you're saying is, Lord, I know that you're powerful, I know that you love us, could you help me, could you help this person with an illness, right? You got a bill you can't pay, and you don't know what's going to happen, and so you're asking for mercy from the Lord, Lord, work this out somehow, that's a supplication, that's a request. And so Paul urges that requests on behalf of others be made. And then we have just the general term prayers. Um, that is a bigger term, prayers in general. If there's something that doesn't fit into the supplications category or the intercessions or the thanksgiving category, even those, stretch your mind to the, to the boundaries for how you can pray and pray. Intercessions are, again, a specific type of prayer. If I intercede for you, that means that I am going for you on your behalf before God saying, Lord, help this person, right? And it may not be like a supplication in that I'm asking for something specific, but just that I know that you know, someone is in sin, someone should come under the wrath of God, but I love that person, and so I'm willing to go before the Lord and say, Lord, have mercy on them, help them to hear the gospel, help them to know. Those are the kind of prayers, prayers of intercession that parents pray for foolish children, that brothers and sisters pray for one another when they're in bad spots. 
And then Thanksgivings. So we have a holiday named Thanksgiving. We should all kind of understand just by the nature of the word what this is. That means, as, as Paul says, as you pray to God for all people, give thanks for them, for who they are or for what they do. And you may hear this and say, well, this is great. Yeah, Christians should pray. We should pray for all people. But as we go on into verse 2, we see that this is um, maybe beyond the scope of what we think of whenever we think of pray for all people. It says, pray for all people, but then specifically for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Why do you think Paul asking the church to, to ask on behalf of, to intercede for, to give thanks for the kings and the rulers of the world would be odd. Why do you think that might be? Do we always like our kings and our rulers today? Who here could honestly say, I am truly from my heart thankful for every ruler and every form of government put over you, right? If you're like me, some of them you're like, yeah, yeah, that's okay. And others you're like, no, please, never again, right? If you really had to invest in your heart. But here we have Paul saying, for all people, for kings. The Roman emperors at this time were not Christian. They didn't like Christians, and they often led persecutions against Christians. And yet we find Paul saying, pray for them. Pray for their protection. Pray for their salvation. Give thanks for them. Maybe this is the first moment where not fair might pop up in your mind. Because if you seek to apply that kind of verse immediately, pray for, intercede for, give thanks for the politician you hate the most, right? That's not right. That's not fair. And yet Paul urges it in the Christians here. Then he gives a reason. He says that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. As Paul urges the people to pray, he has in mind the ideal life of the church. Like, what should the church across the world look like? Peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified. Paul urged prayers among the Christians for everyone, especially the rulers and those in high positions, because he desperately wanted to see the church be able to live this way. Peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified. He didn't want to see the church chased around and persecuted and fought poorly of in the public square. He didn't want Christ to be made a fool of because the public saw Christians as crazy or as irreverent or as evil. And so he calls out to the hearts of Christians and he says... Pray for these people, even the ones that you might see as enemies. Even them. Verses 3 and 4 should come up on the screen. 
He continues and says, This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul looks out at them and he says, Furthermore, having this attitude, living this way, is pleasing to God. Not only is it a good idea for others, but it's pleasing to God. So if you, if you pray, if you have this heart, you'll please God. Why? Because God desires that all people would be saved. Everybody. We may look out on the rulers of this world and see enemies. We may look out at the people in the world who don't share our beliefs and don't share our values and don't believe the things that we believe. Um, we might look out on the, the, <laughs> the freedom fighters or, or the terrorists or the, or the soldiers and armies of other countries and say, kill them. We may look at others in the world and think that they're just problems for us. But God looks at every single person, regardless of their sin, regardless of how or why they do what they do, and he, he wants them to be saved. He doesn't want them to continue in rebellion. Sometimes we talk to this, uh, this aspect of God's will as God's will of disposition, um, so oftentimes whenever you open up this Bible, you'll find, you know, God's will is this, or God wants this to happen, and, and he has different types of will, basically. So there's like his decreed will, the stuff that we know is true from the Bible. There's his hidden will, right? The exact order of future events that none of us know. It's a different category of will. And here we find the will of his disposition, it speaks to his character, that God in his character doesn't take pleasure when people are destroyed for their sin. He doesn't like it. He hates it. Yes, he's a just God, and yes, he is willing to pass judgment. Yes, he's willing to send people to hell, but he doesn't take pleasure in it. He's not happy about it. He's not giddy, like rubbing his hands together like some weird, evil, like, cartoon character. Paul urges the Christians here to pray for everyone, even people they would have seen as their enemies, because in the character of God, we see that he desires all people to be saved. Some people will cry out, not fair, here again. Why should it be that they get a chance after all they've done? That's not fair. Or maybe on the other side, if God wants it so bad, how come he doesn't just make it happen? Right? For everybody. Regardless. It's not fair that God would be so choosy. In any case, Paul doesn't travel down that road or ask those questions like we do. 
He's making a different point, a point about the behavior and the testimony of the church. Why would that be so important? Why would it be so important that the behavior and the testimony of the church be pointed in this way? Let's continue in verse 5. This is really the center of the passage, the foundation of Paul's teaching. Verse 5, for there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul, speaking of himself in verse 7, says this, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And so he gives his reasoning here. He says, first off, there is one God. There is one God, which would have sounded like insanity to many in the culture of the Roman times. Rome often looked at Christians as atheists. Like, I'm, I'm serious, they would even use that type of terminology. Because Christians insisted that there was only one God, Romans looked at them as irreligious, unwilling to recognize the full scope of the spiritual world. And yet, it's the truth. And so Paul preaches, he says, there's one God. Something that would have been fought against and rejected by so many in that day. One that's fought against even today. Maybe not so unpopular here, but if you talk to a brother or sister who lives in India, or a brother or sister who lives in China, they'll tell you it's controversial. And it's incredibly difficult in India whenever uh, someone starts to believe in Jesus to explain to them that you don't just add him to the rest that you're worshiping. Um, and so we might not feel it here, here as much, but it's still alive and well today and something that people would fight against. There's one God. And then he says that there's one mediator. The one God that does exist, here's the truth, people are in rebellion against him. That's what sin is. We're rebels against him. He's our loving ruler, our loving creator, and yet we shake our fists at him and we say our wisdom is better, our way is better, we have more of a sense of right. Not fair, not fair, not fair, right? That's what sin is. It's not fair that God alone would get the wisdom. I want the wisdom too. That's Eve in the garden before she bites the fruit. There's one God, and we're in complete rebellion against him, and our relationship with him is broken, and he's completely offended. And justice is required. The word rebellion is a hard thing to talk about in our country because it was founded upon a rebellion. And so I just want to acknowledge that. We have this baggage as we talk about rebellion um, that the rebel has been lifted up as something good and wonderful often. It is one thing, hear me on this, it is one thing to rebel 
against clearly corrupt, clearly evil, clearly destructive government, right? It is another thing entirely to rebel against God. (laughs) Another thing entirely. When there's rebellion, evil rebellion, justice is required. Rebellion must be met with justice. So that's bad news for all of us, right? If we're in rebellion against him, if we're sinners, if the world is in rebellion against him, the bad news is justice is required. God will put down the rebellion. But there's one mediator. This is the good news in the verse. There's one mediator. One person who goes between God the Father and man and fixes things. Who makes it right. One mediator, Jesus Christ, the scripture says he gave himself as a ransom for all. This is the gospel. That Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for you and for me and for anyone who would believe in him. Anyone at all. This is the gospel. Christ died for us. Even though we deserve to die for our sin. He absorbed the punishment for our sin. Here specifically, the word ransom is used. Um, Do we often think about the word ransom? Most of the time we use the word ransom today, it's because we're watching like some movie, right? And and the bad guys kidnap somebody's daughter or son, and then they demand a ransom. Like it's generally what we hear. And so the ransom is the payment that's given, and the bad guys take it, and hopefully they let your, you know, the kidnapped person go, right? That's what we talk about when we talk about ransom. So you ever think about that in context of Jesus? Through our own foolishness and our own rebellion, judgment and death hangs over us, and Jesus gives himself as a payment to be spent on our behalf. Do we still want to talk about fairness? With that, not fair. It isn't fair that Christ would be turned over for us. That's not fair, right? You know, we gonna act like the child that looks at his parents and crosses his arms here? Not fair whenever it's in our benefit. Not fair. Friends, we're not in a position to scrutinize our own rescue. Do you understand how like insane that sounds? If, if all of us are willing to admit that judgment is real, like we can feel it in our bones, Like, we just know that one day we're all going to face the piper, and that's just an inherent knowledge that God puts in every human being, right? If we know that deep down, are we really in a position to scrutinize the rescue that God performs? 
to look at that and say, no, we'd rather it not be that way. Can't it be a different way? Children are in a better position to arbitrate with their parents, to argue with their parents, than we're in a position to argue with God about what's fair, right? I may look at my children and think, you're silly for arguing with me right now, but they're smarter, far more wise than I am when I try to do the same thing to God. We're just not in a position, we don't have perfect knowledge and we don't have perfect perspective. We may ask the question about this, this often comes up, if there's only one God and one mediator, what about all the people that don't know Jesus, have never heard the gospel? Have any of you ever thought about that? I have. I'm I'm guessing I'm not the only one. Notice that Paul here doesn't stop and start asking God philosophical questions. Instead, he knows what God's want. He knows God's heart to want to see all people repent. And so he takes up the call to spread God's word. Like his action is not to question God about what about the people who don't know. His action is to go out and spend his entire life doing everything he can to help people to know, right? Even the rulers and the powers that completely oppose God, even them, I'll spend myself, Paul said, to win them. So there is one God and there's one mediator, Jesus Christ. When we say Christ alone, this sola that we're talking about right now, Christ alone, we're talking about that. Christ alone is the mediator between us and God. He's the sole entity that stands between us and our judge to make it right. Just him, no one else. And this doctrine is soaked, hear me on this, through and through with the love of God. He desires people to be saved. He gave his son as a ransom. It's soaked through with love. We may struggle with exclusivity of Christ, like just him alone, and the idea of mercy, but it's clear in Scripture. I'm going to read it again from Acts chapter 4. It'll come up on the screen. Hear this. This is in a sermon that Peter is giving after a man is healed. And he, this, he gets to the climax of his sermon here. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so Paul, I'm sorry, Peter here is looking out at a group of, of religious leaders and the people that were literally at Jesus' crucifixion shouting crucify him and he's saying that person you rejected he's the only name he's the only one who can save you the only one there's exclusivity here jesus only only christ and yet there's mercy here the people who rejected him still get a chance right 
We see exclusivity and mercy again in the, chapter, in the book of John. Uh, we'll be John, in John 14, starting in verse 5. Hear this. Thomas said to him, speaking to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is preparing to be crucified and to leave this world. And he's telling his disciples about it and they're confused. And it comes down to this. He says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you see the exclusivity here again? Jesus alone. You don't get to have a relationship with God except through the power and the work of Jesus. And yet we see mercy here. His, even his disciples are completely ignorant on what he wants. Jesus was willing to come down and to lead them, to take them by the hand. To show them the way to God. And so this doctrine, the doctrine of Christ alone as our mediator, um, is just foundational to what the gospel preaches and to our experience in the faith. And it's a real protection to us. We spoke about protections last week, and we'll speak about just a couple of them again. On one side, believing and holding to the idea that Christ alone is our mediator, it protects us from sliding into what's often called universalism. The idea that anybody everywhere, no matter what, whether they know Jesus, don't know Jesus, no matter how they live, that all will be saved. Like That idea isn't biblical. It would be sin without justice, rebellion without any answer to the rebellion. It would be a way that's not Jesus, a road that Christ said doesn't exist. Universalism whenever it's entered into the church, comes in as a false mercy, right? We pat people on their shoulder and they say, you're going to be okay, it's all right, it's all right, don't worry about it. They live their own rebellious life, they reject Christ practically in every way, and where do they end up? We've given them a false mercy, don't worry about it, brother. But then one day they stand before God who has different ideas of what's fair and what's not than we do. And it also leads to wishful speculation instead of a missionary calling. Churches that slide into universalism end up sitting by themselves alone, thinking everybody's okay, and there's no motivation to actually go out and to tell people about the gospel, that they can have mercy with the Lord. That's one side. It also protects us from developing other mediators. We have one mediator between us and God. But the tendency throughout the ages is for people not to trust in that one mediator. There are a thousand gurus and a thousand cults of personality that exist out there that want to tell you the way to heaven, right? All the way from the craziness that is uh, the public, you know, religions like Scientology that are publicly mocked, right? Pay your money and we'll introduce you to our alien overlord, right? 
the gurus that want to give you away, a different mediator. It can be as, as crazy as that, or it can be as small as the little religious cults that popped up all over the country in the 1800s. There were, there were literally hundreds of them that popped up all over the country, small cults centered around one dynamic leader that pretended to be a different way to God. They exist today. They have better marketing by and large. But there are a thousand gurus or cults of personality that will tell you they're a mediator. And then even within the church, historically, there have been times whenever we've called Christ the one mediator between God and men, but then we make extra layers between people and Jesus, right? Jesus is the mediator to get to God, but there are other mediators before you get to Jesus. Um, if we think of mediators that could be in the heavens, sometimes this has been uh, like prayer to angels or prayer to, to saints who have gone on before us as mediators that bridge the gap between us and Jesus so then Jesus can go to God. On earth, there have been times whenever church leaders, priests, bishops, pastors have acted like the mediators that are the go-between between the people and God. Um, and again, as I said last week, if your mind immediately goes to Roman Catholicism, it's not just churches that historically venerate saints that have this problem. It can be Protestant churches as well. Every time we look to a pastor as our connection to God, or some spiritual grandmother that we've got, right? Well, there's that one person in our church that prays enough for the rest of us, right? Anytime we look at another person as that mediator between God and men, between us and Jesus, we violated this doctrine. And so this doctrine stands in protection against slipping off to one side or the other in these situations. So how do we apply this? That's how we'll finish. For those who are outside of the church, for those who don't know Jesus, this is the truth from the scripture. God loves you, he wants to save you, and he wants to do it now. You don't have to stay in rebellion against God. Though you're a sinner, though the relationship is broken, you don't have to stay there. That you can have a relationship with God now. That Jesus is not just ransom for other people, he's your ransom. He's your salvation. He's your mediator. Just believe and submit yourself to him. And for those of us inside the church, hear me on these two things. First off, you have access to the throne of God through Jesus. Do you understand that? There is, there is no wall or barrier between you and God that hasn't been overcome by what Christ has done for you. Which means whatever sin you have, whatever guilt you manage, whatever frustration you deal with on a daily basis, Christ has made a way for you to have a real relationship with him and with God. Judgment doesn't dangle over you. You don't need me to comfort you if you're a Christian. Not really because Christ has already died for you. Other Christians can be an encouragement, sure, can point you to the truth. 
but like but spiritually really you don't need me to approve you you don't need rich to approve you you don't need your husband or your wife to approve you spiritually to confirm in you that you have a relationship with god christ did that when he died for you and if you believe in him it's true So if you're a believer, friend, you have access to God. I'm not saying that you should just be like me and Jesus alone. I don't need anybody else. The Bible clearly says that he set up the church for a reason to be a family that follows him. But the church is not the mediator of your access. And then the last thing is, is you have responsibility. If you love Jesus, if you believe in him... If you accept him as your mediator, and if you have any concept of the lostness in the world, your neighbors and your family that don't know him, you have a responsibility not to just stand and say, is it fair that God would condemn these people? But a responsibility with Paul, with Timothy, with the church to live in such a way, to speak in such a way, to minister in such a way that they might see the goodness and the mercy of Christ that's available through you. Pray with me. Heavenly Father,